Hello and welcome to the Almost Forgotten, the podcast that looks at the lives of great historical figures who have fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. It's a new year, thank goodness, a new season, and we're back after the typical end of season break. Season 6 seems like it was 10 years ago, but it's actually pretty recent considering I basically didn't leave the house since I last recorded. As usual, for Season 7, we'll go in chronological order for each episode in this season. We're starting out in the ancient world, at the end of the Bronze Age, in the Near East, with a civilization that you most likely have heard of, but one that you almost certainly know very little about. It's the ancient civilization of Alam, and perhaps their most powerful king, Shutruk Nakunte, who took this oftentimes disunited culture and created an empire out of it. Alam existed for thousands of years, but under Shutruk Nakunte, they managed to be one of the great powers in the region, a rarity for them, despite their long-lived civilization. Maps and images can be found on the website almostforgotten.squarespace.com. If you have any questions or comments, you can email me at almostforgottenpodcast.gmail.com or find me on Twitter at The Almost Forgot. This is Season 7, Episode 1, Shutruk Nakunte, and this is The Almost Forgotten. Shutruk Nakunte lived in the first half of the 12th century BC, a time of great change in the world. The eastern Mediterranean, home to a majority of the civilizations that we actually know about from that time, was rocked by massive changes. The western Mediterranean, on the other hand, was made up of Bronze Age cultures. The Urnfeld culture was widely spread across Europe, although there were others with descriptive names like Atlantic Bronze Age culture and Nordic Bronze Age culture. Further east, the kingdom of Colchis had formed on the eastern Black Sea coast in today's Georgia. The Shrubnaya and Andronovo cultures, probably Proto-Scythians and Cimmerians, stretched across the western Eurasian steppe. Other Indo-Iranian cultures stretched further east towards Mongolia. India was in the Vedic period, and the Indo-Aryan people and languages were already spreading from the northwest down across the Gangetic Plain. The caste system was probably emerging, and the Vedas, ancient Hindu scriptures, were beginning to take form. The Shang dynasty ruled over much of northern China. They are the first Chinese dynasty that we know are for sure historical, rather than just possibly legendary. And they were about five centuries old at this point with another century or so to go. Across the Pacific, in Mesoamerica, the Olmec civilization was thriving by this time. They weren't yet in their expansion period, but they had already established a complex civilization in today's Veracruz region of Mexico. As for the other parts of the world? Look, I really don't know. It's like 1100-something B.C., We just don't know much outside of those places that are writing things down, and that's mostly in the eastern Mediterranean. So let's just end the world tour a little early this time and go right there, because it's pretty wild. 
This was the beginning, the really hot and heavy part, of what's known as the Late Bronze Age Collapse. Although Eric Klein's spectacular book, 1177 BC, The Year Civilization Collapsed, posits that it was more than one thing, in more than one year, that caused the devastation in the region at the time, he still calls out 1177 specifically in the title. For those unfamiliar, a group, or several groups, known as the Sea Peoples, whoever they were, raided cities across the eastern Mediterranean. This, coupled with probable climate change and famine, caused destruction across the region. Egypt suffered but survived. Pharaoh Ramses III ruled roughly the same years that Shutrik Nakunte did. Meanwhile, the Mycenaeans in Greece, the Hittites in Anatolia, the Kingdom of Alashia on Cyprus, and city-states on the Levantine coast, such as Ugarit, all essentially collapsed as civilizations. Most major cities in the eastern Mediterranean were destroyed in the first half of the 12th century. And I don't mean to say many major. I am rather purposefully saying most major cities. Again, this is a small part of a large world, but for that time period, there isn't a part of the world where we know anywhere near as much. Slightly further east of the coastal areas, the collapse wasn't quite as precipitous, but things weren't rosy for everyone. The Kassite dynasty ruled in Babylon, but they too were about to lose their grip on power, although that was in no small part due to Elam and to Assyria. Speaking of Assyria, they ruled over northern Mesopotamia, and they were growing in power at the time, as was Elam. Elam straddled the borders between the lowland river valleys of southern Mesopotamia not too far from what would be called Babylonia, and the highlands in the southern Zagros Mountains of today's western Iran. Their capital, Susa, was on the edge of the highlands, but in a valley. It was actually on a river less than 200 miles east of the Tigris. It was right next to Mesopotamia, and it was able to act as a bridge between the western and the eastern regions. But this area later called Susiana by the Greeks, was not all of Elam. Elam also stretched eastward, towards today's province of Fars, which is an Arabization of Pars, which came from Parsa, Persis in Greek. This is what gives us the name Persia, and in this region of Persis was the city of Anshan. Anshan was another major Elamite center, and unlike Susa, was firmly in the Persian highlands, not far from the eventual site of Persepolis, the capital of the Achaemenid Persian Empire. With regards to Elam, calling these cities their capitals may not be accurate. At times, the Elamite kings ruled from there, and eventually they'd call themselves the kings of Anshan and Susa. But oftentimes, these cities were really more like the two most powerful cities of the Elamite people, who were confederated, but not necessarily a single state. Susa was, however, the Elamite bridge to the thriving civilizations of Mesopotamia, the south basically being Babylonia, the north Assyria, despite Susa not actually being part of Mesopotamia. Other than simply not being in the Tigris and Euphrates river valleys, there was also a bit of a buffer between the two areas. Elam was separated, from what was initially Sumer, 
and would later be Babylonia, by marshlands and desert, making Susiana its own unique region, rather than simply the eastern edge of Mesopotamia itself. We might first and foremost consider Elam to be the region in which people spoke Elamite. Elamite itself was not a Semitic language, unlike Akkadian, which was the lingua franca of Mesopotamia. It was rather, like Sumerian, a language isolate. It wasn't related to Sumerian, or any other language that we know, and Elamite is not easy to translate. And I don't mean like it's hard to remember the words or whatever, but rather it lacks a significant surviving corpus, so scholars can't always interpret what it all means. Regardless, they wrote with the Akkadian cuneiform alphabet, and there are at least some surviving documents in Elamite, as well as a few inscriptions by the Achaemenid Persian kings that have texts in Elamite and Old Persian. So there is certainly some amount of understanding of some of these surviving texts. And by texts, I of course mean large blocks of stone with cuneiform carved into them. Interestingly, because they took the Akkadian alphabet and adapted it to their own language, even if it didn't necessarily fit, we don't really know how Elamite is pronounced. So, if you think I'm mispronouncing Shutruk Nakunte, well, you might be right, but you don't really know either. Elamites also didn't call themselves Elamites. That's a term first used by the Sumerians, then the Akkadians, which has since been translated. The Elamites called themselves the Haltamti, but perhaps because we have quite a few more Mesopotamian records of Elam than Elamite records, we go with Elam as the name. As far as their history is concerned, well, we believe Elam existed in the first half of the 3rd millennium BC. The Sumerian kings occasionally refer to conquests and victories over Elam, whose seat of power seemed to be a city or area called Awan. Sargon the Great defeated both Awan and Susa when he created the world's first empire. Sargon's successors came back to reconquer them, including his grandson Naram-Sin, and the Akkadians probably went even further east that time. Awan, meanwhile, is a city that remains undiscovered. But many believe, because the Akkadians came in and conquered it, that it is in western Elam. Except maybe it's not. You see, Awan pretty much disappeared from any records by the end of the 3rd millennium BC. And not long after, Anshan became the other main Elamite city along with Susa. Now, it's entirely possible Awan faded away for any number of reasons. Conquest, the whims of a king, rivers changing course, you name it. It's also possible Awan didn't disappear at all. Jay Hansman writes in the Cambridge History of Iran, quote, Anshan may have been the chief city of the district of Awan. The available evidence suggests that Awan may attest an alternate, perhaps an early Elamite name for the region called Anshan by later Sumerians and Elamites, unquote. Now, this is not a universally accepted theory, and most scholars seem to believe Awan was not in the eastern mountain regions near Persis like Anshan, but was rather in the west near Susa, closer to Mesopotamia, and to the Akkadian conquests. Either way, that's it for Awan. Elam is all about Anshan and Susa after the 2000s. 
200 years after Sargon, when Ur-Namu, Season 5, Episode 1, founded the last Sumerian dynasty of real consequence, Susa became a target once again, and it was conquered once again. Ur-Namu and his son and successor Shulgi ruled over the city and led raids and attacks further east. What's not clear is how much control these empires really exerted over Elam, and for that matter, how much control one city in Elam had over the others. It's entirely possible that at the time, Anshan and Susa were just the two most powerful cities of the Elamite culture, as opposed to either of them being something like the capital of a kingdom of Elam. It is known that after taking Susa, the Sumerians then tried to make alliances with Anshan, and later went to war with it. Whether that was a royal family that fled Susa and took up residence in Anshan, or always ruled from Anshan, again, we just don't know. The Elamites, however, had their revenge, and eventually destroyed the last Sumerian Empire, taking Ur itself, and ruling over it right at the turn of the millennium. Around this time, it is likely that Elam became something of a kingdom under what is known as the Shamashki dynasty. According to Elizabeth Carter and Matthew W. Stolper, in the appropriately titled book, Elam, quote, the autonomous highland states coalesced through military or dynastic alliance into the Shamashkian monarchy during the period of Sumerian military and diplomatic probes in southwestern Iran, unquote. The Elamite cities were coalescing into a state, and around 1900 BC, the region entered what is known as the Sukulma dynasty. This comes from the title for the Elamite kings of the time, which likely saw Elamite expansion north and west up the Zagros Mountains. Elam became one of the bigger powers of the region, which is why Hammurabi proudly recorded his victories over them in the mid-1700s. He expanded his Babylonian empire from mostly Babylon on the Euphrates to much of southern Mesopotamia, including east to the Tigris and the city of Eshnuna, which was held by the Elamites at the time. It is generally believed he never expanded his conquests into the Zagros Mountains or even as far as Susa, so Elam remained. But there is little evidence of a united Elamite kingdom at that point, so the Sukulma period may have been on the downhill slope by the 18th century BC. The kingdom and the governmental structure may have been fragmented. Even if Elam itself, the region, and the Elamite people survived. Scholars had thought that Elam probably fragmented for a few centuries, in part because we don't have many references to the kingdom in the Mesopotamian sources. But recently, it is considered more likely that Elam remained a kingdom of sorts as it moved into the Middle Period, which culminated in the Elamite Empire. Our lack of dates and names of kings from this time definitely complicates the history. But we do know of one king in the early part of the Middle Period who at least called himself King of Susa and Anshan. These cities were the most important cities of Elam and aren't exactly close, so if someone was controlling both, he was king of Elam, assuming you can believe his claim. Considering the tablets with these references were found near Susa, he almost certainly controlled that city. Anshan, on the other hand, we just don't know. Maybe he ruled there as well. 
Maybe he was speaking in more aspirational terms. Now, he wasn't necessarily a king of major consequence, but he shows us that Elam was still there. Regardless, it wasn't a powerful kingdom he was ruling, and Elam experienced invasions and incursions from Babylon in the 14th and 13th centuries. At one point in the early 14th century, the Babylonians did conquer Susa, although this subjugation seems to have only lasted a short period of time. But eventually, power in Elam grew. Sometime in the 13th century, an Elamite king named Untash Naparisha built a city called Dur-Untash. And there, he built a massive ziggurat. It is the largest surviving ziggurat outside of Mesopotamia, just over 50 meters in height when completed. And this became a religious and political center. Today it is a world heritage site, outside of the Iranian town of Chogazanbil, and it is one of the best-preserved ziggurats remaining. By the second half of the 13th century, Elam, along with Assyria, was regularly attacking and subjugating Babylonian territory. Babylon was getting weaker, and the Assyrian king, Tukulti Ninurta, successfully installed a client king there. Meanwhile, the Elamite king, Kidin Hutran, attacked Nippur, an old Sumerian city, and may have at some point even forced out an Assyrian puppet there. It's not clear who was king immediately after Kidin Hutran, but around the turn of the century, Haludish Inshushinak became the king. We don't think he was a direct descendant of the previous kings, and we don't know if he was definitely an actual king. But his son, Shutruk Nakunte, was a king, so today it is marked as the beginning of the Shutrakid dynasty. Shutruk Nakunte came to power probably in the 1180s BC. At this point, it appears that Elam was a united monarchy under him. He brought engravings to Susa from the other major Elamite city of Anshan, from the important city of Dur-Untash where that world-class ziggurat was built, and from other places across Elam. This reflects that he was in control of these places, and that he was using Susa, not Dur-Antash or Anshan, as his capital. So what did this king do? Unfortunately, we don't know a ton about his life. Not because he had great ambition without making any contributions or anything so esoteric. Rather, his life is a bit of a mystery because, like the rest of Elam, we don't have the kind of preserved texts that we do for the Mesopotamian rulers. And ones that we do have aren't so easy to decipher. Gigi Cameron writes in his early history of Iran of an enticing find from Elam. Quote, One inscription of Shutruk Nakunte, could we translate it accurately, would give us some idea of his numerous activities. Unfortunately, the text is extremely difficult, and in many places, the meaning is obscure, unquote. Despite this inscription that Cameron yearned to decipher, we still do know some of his activities, including significant expansion and conquest. We know that Shutruk Nakunte brought Elam to new heights of power and influence. He invaded Mesopotamia on several occasions and was, overall, successful in these raids. According to Cameron, Quote, his own inscription speaks of a camp in Eli, of capturing 700 cities as far as Mara, and then a hundred more, unquote. Shutruk Nahunte 
also attacked the city of Sippar, and was successful there as well, carrying off the famous statue of Marduk, a personification of the god who was so important to Babylon. He also took home the victory stele of Naram-Sin. Naram-Sin was that grandson of Sargon of Akkad, and he made the stele to commemorate the defeat of the Lulabi people in the Zagros Mountains. This happened around 2250 BC, give or take, so the artifact was over a thousand years old at that point. This means, and I love these comparisons, when Shutruk Nakunte got the stele, it was older to him than William the Conqueror's Tower of London is to you and me. Naram Sin was further back in Shutruk Nakunte's past than Genghis Khan is to us. I could keep going. His conquest of the Lulubi was more ancient to Shudinak than the First Crusade was to us. All right, I'll stop. But Shutruk Nakunte wasn't necessarily awed by the ancientness of the stele, or at least he wasn't interested in archaeological preservation. So he wrote all over it. Lucky for us, add another 3,000 years, and suddenly his ruining of a stele becomes archaeologically important to us. His tagging of it, besides alerting us to his presence by giving us his name and telling us what he was king of, also tells us that it was the city of Sippar where he earned his victory, and that he did it all for Inshushinak, the protector god of Susa. His writing on the Akkadian stele reads, quote, I am Shutruk Nakunte, son of Halutish Inshushinak, and beloved servant of the god Inshushinak, king of Anshan and Susa, who has enlarged the kingdom, who takes care of the lands of Elam, the lord of the land of Elam. When the god in Shushinak gave me the order, I defeated Sippar. I took the stele of Naram Sim and carried it off, bringing it to the land of Elam. For in Shushinak, my god, I set it as an offering. Unquote. In Shushinak was a very important god to the Elamites. About a century earlier, that massive ziggurat at Dur-Untash was built as a way to honor in Shushinak. Oh, and it also seems that Shutruk Nakunte took something else with him. The Code of Hammurabi. You may have heard of it. Like, he took the original one. In 1901, French archaeologists discovered it while excavating Susa. So it was never taken back to Sippar or anywhere else in Babylon. After all this success, Shutruk Nakunte decided he might as well go after the big prize, Babylon. After all, he had their statue of Marduk, he was holding their god, why not take the whole city? Over the Middle Elamite period, Elam was often closely allied with Babylon and had intermarried with the royal family there. But the new king of Babylon, who was part of the Kassite dynasty which had ruled for centuries, didn't actually have any of these ties so that was an issue. Also, the alliance had really been from when Babylon was more powerful, and they weren't so strong anymore. In fact, it's possible that the dynastic squabbles weren't a major issue at all, and that maybe Shutruk Nakunte was just trying to conquer whoever he could. But he did have some amount of claim to the throne of Babylon himself. The Kassite rulers and the Elamites had been allies for generations, and Shutruk Nakunte may have felt that he deserved the throne there. He himself was married to the eldest daughter of a Kassite king. He was part of a decades-long family dynasty, 
and the new king was from a different family. Shutruk Nakunte was probably like, wait, that guy instead of us? Regardless of his motivation, he attacked Babylon around 1160 and was again quite successful. But seriously, his real motivation was almost certainly conquests and spoils, that sort of thing. He took the city and set up Elamite rule there. According to Francois Valley in an article for the Circle of Ancient Iranian Studies, quote, in 1158, he killed the Kassite king, Zababa Suma Edina, and placed his own eldest son, Kutur Nakunte, on the throne of Babylon, unquote. The Babylonian Kassite dynasty fell, more or less, because of Shutruk Nakunte's invasion. It was already weakened and dying, but he pushed it over the edge. There was one more Kassite king, Enlil Nadin Ahi, but he only lasted two years, and he was ruling simultaneously with Kutir Nakunte, probably a rival regime in some kind of civil war. Shutruk Nakunte led campaigns in other places as well, although we know very little of them. We do know of an inscription he left in the city of Boucher, an important port on the Persian Gulf coast. This clues us into the fact that his empire stretched not just to Babylonia, but to the Persian Gulf as well. As Carter and Stopler wrote, quote, The conquests marked by his trophy collection thus extended from the highlands on the Great Khorasan Road, across the Diyala region, and the Isthmus of Mesopotamia as far as the Euphrates. In other words, Elam controlled most of the territory of Babylonia, west to the Euphrates. It also likely controlled the old Sumerian cities to the south, such as Uruk, which had been part of Kassite Babylonia for centuries. Besides conquests, we also know of quite a few temples he built, and this includes improving a temple in Susa, in honor of Enshushinak, of course. Shutruk Nakunte died in about 1158 BC and his son, Kutir Nakunte, inherited the throne. He died and was replaced by his brother around 1150 BC. We have no idea if there was a civil war here, if this brother, Shilhak and Shushinak, overthrew Kutir Nakunte, or just took over when he died. We do know that Babylon slipped out of Elamite grasp relatively soon after its conquest, when the Isin dynasty came to power there. Shilhak and Shushinak ruled Elam for something like 30 years, and the kingdom continued to be a major power in the region. This period, bookended with Shutruk Nakunte and Shilhak and Shushinak, was truly the height of Elamite power. The younger king raided and had victories in northern Mesopotamia, not far from Assur, the Assyrian capital. He also left many inscriptions, which is why we know he spent quite a bit of time raiding Mesopotamia. Brigadier General Sir Percy Sykes wrote of him in his A History of Persia and of the French archaeologist Jacques de Morgan, who excavated much of Susa, that Shilhak in Shushinak was, quote, a great administrator who was also a great builder. De Morgan owes much to him, for he never inscribed his name on a restored temple without also mentioning the original founder. Unquote. Sykes also called this period their golden age in art and literature. By the time Shilhak and Shushinak died, the Elamite Empire stretched from almost Persepolis in the east to the Persian Gulf shores, up the Zagros Mountains, into the heart of Assyria, 
west to at least the Tigris, as far as the Euphrates in some parts. But after his death, things quickly turned south. Around 1110 BC, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar I, went to war with Elam. It was a success for the Babylonians, something that became the stuff of legends for their culture. The war itself may have been long, taking place over many years. But according to a kudaru, which sounds like an Australian term but is actually an Akkadian word for a boundary stone, one that is now housed in the British Museum, we get the story of a surprise attack that gave the Babylonians their victory. Apparently, the Babylonians led a raid in the hottest part of the summer, from the city of Dur, and it was a difficult march. Horses were thirsty, men were sweating and on the verge of dropping like flies, that sort of thing. But he had to do it in order to avenge Akkad, which is to say Assyria, the northern part of Mesopotamia, because the Elamites must have been raiding there. The Babylonians sacked Susa, and they were victorious in battle on the river where Susa sits. They brought back the stolen statue of Marduk. Elam declined precipitously at this point. Eastern Elam was soon overtaken by the Persians, and this included the important city of Anshan. That area became the region from where the Achaemenid Empire, or the Persian Empire, would eventually emerge. Elam shrank, but it still remained a kingdom, we think. The external sources begin to disappear because the Mesopotamians were just too weak to go out and try and fight the Elamites. These Babylonians weren't big-time conquerors, so the Elamites weren't targets for warfare, and therefore nobody wrote about them. And there haven't been significant Elamite tablets that could tell us what happened. Then, in the 9th century, came the Assyrians and the emergence of the Neo-Assyrian Empire, which is when Elam came back into the written record. During this Neo-Elamite period, as it's known, it was not as big or as strong as the Elamite Empire, although they did push back an Assyrian invasion, defeating Sargon II. Elam no longer controlled Anshan or Persia, but it was still a player in the region. In the early 7th century, Elam allied with the Babylonians and stopped an attempted Assyrian conquest of Babylon. Persis actually came in and helped, as an ally rather than as part of Elam, and may well have been led by the dynasty's founder, Achaemenes, at the time. A few generations later, Assyria was more successful with an invasion under their king Ashurbanipal, who conquered Susa and beheaded the Elamite king. As Elam roiled over the next few years in civil war, eventually Ashurbanipal returned again in force. In 646 or 645, Susa suffered the worst sack of its history, according to Dykonov, and it sort of ceased to function for a while. It did recover eventually. The Babylonian king Nabopolassar helped prop it up again in order to gain an ally, but Elam was really done as a significant regional power. Subject probably to Syaxares in the Median Empire, it was eventually absorbed into the Achaemenid Persian Empire, as a weak client kingdom. Susa was too attractive a spot, though, and it became the winter capital of the mighty Persian Empire. It was still important when Alexander conquered the empire, and he spent months there. The Seleucids, though, built a regional capital called Seleucia, or Seleucia if you're not Macedonian, I guess, at the beginning of their reign. 
it became the capital of the satrapy of Susiana. This reduced Susa's importance, but the city still wasn't abandoned. At one point, Trajan captured it when Rome marched as far east as it would ever get. It eventually became part of the Parthian Empire, and then the Sassanid Empire. The city of Susa remained occupied after the Muslim conquest, but lost whatever importance it had left after the Mongols sacked it in the 1200s AD. Today, the original city is unoccupied, but there is a town of about 50,000 just next to the ruins. Susa lasted longer than Alam, but Alam had an incredible run. While we can't accurately know whether it was truly a kingdom the whole time, we do know that the Elamite civilization lasted from around 3000 BC to around 300 BC. But it reached its height in the 12th century, thanks to its king Shutruk Nakunte. He grew Alam into an empire which covered most of southern Mesopotamia and parts of the north as well. No doubt it stretched further east, even if we don't have written records from the conquered people there to prove it. And his empire wasn't so ephemeral, as it continued to grow and flourish for almost another half a century after his death, under his son's rule. Shutruk Nakunte turned what was often a bit player in regional politics and warfare into the leading state of the ancient Near East. And it remained so for the better part of a century after he took power. In the next episode, we'll fast forward about a thousand years, give or take, and move north and west to another kingdom that thrived on the edge of more famous and powerful empires. Thanks for listening.